Amos chapter 4 and verse 4 has to really stand as one of the most unusual verses in the Bible. Come to Bethel and transgress. Come to Gilgal and multiply your transgressions. You don't expect the Bible to have a word from God encouraging you to sin, let alone to come specially to religious places in order to do so. All of us at some times are under delusions. We have false beliefs and mistaken notions about people or about things and we need the facts to correct our understanding and the teachers to direct our thinking. Part of the godless delusion of today is that if it appears as if we can get along without God. It appears almost as if there is no God. Our wealth gives us a sense of false security. When I drove an old and very unreliable car, I often would pray about arriving safely. In fact, I would pray about arriving, let alone safely. But now that I drive a fairly new car and a very reliable one at that, I hardly ever pray about arriving safely. I just assume that I'll be able to do it. The wealthier we get, the more we live under the delusion of safety and security. For we think we can do anything we want to and will not face any difficulty. Another delusion is that of false religion. Commonly in our culture is cultural Christianity. Singing carols at Christmas. Why even the atheist Mr Dawkins wants to do that. Having the children baptised, turning up occasional services in church, weddings, funerals and the rest... It's illusory just as any religious spirituality is a delusion if it's not based in the truth. Lighting candles, burning incense, meditating, all delusions of people who do not know God but who want to say, but I am very spiritual. It never actually seems to cross their mind as to what spirit they are engaged in. And then there are the false perceptions of God. Things go wrong in life and the superstitious say, well, it's karma. Or the spiritualists do, the superstitions say, well, it's just bad luck. And some would say, well, no, no, it's all a consequence of El Nino. If you just understand the world properly, you'll understand the cause and effect results that mean we're where we are. Worse still are people who claim in the name of Christianity that it cannot be God because God is loving and kind and gracious, all of which is true, and would never punish people or send bad things upon people, which is very false. There are those who want to say, God will be involved in healing, but he would never be involved in sickness. So God can heal you of a sickness, but God can't give you a sickness because well, either he's not able to do such a thing or he's too nice to ever do such a thing. And so we never actually receive the message that he is sending to us in our sicknesses. Now, all this is in Israel's failure to meet God in the time of Jeroboam II, the king of Israel, around about 750 years before the Lord Jesus Christ. We find it in Amos 4, if you have your Bibles open there and the blue outline as well, you'll follow the sermon more easily. Page 929, 
is not the right page number. Page 927 is. 927. But to understand uh, this part of Amos, we need to have clear in our minds the historical background of what is happening at this time. Uh, Joshua took over from Moses and led the people of Israel into the promised land and then we go through the period of the judges. Then 1000 BC, we had King David and following his son, King Solomon, who ruled over the whole nation of Israel at that time. The 12 tribes settled in the promised land. Then at the end of the reign of Solomon, around 930 BC, Jeroboam rules the northern kingdom of Israel and Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, rules the southern, two, uh, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. There's this massive split. Ten northern tribes go with Jeroboam, two southern tribes stay with the house of David and Rehoboam. Judah was settled around Jerusalem and the temple that Solomon had built, whereas Israel was settled around Samaria and had several different shrines, especially the old sites of Gilgal and Bethel. Gilgal was the home base for the nation when they crossed over the Jordan in the time of Joshua. Samuel and Saul had offered up sacrifices there, Samuel acceptable, but Saul's well brought condemnation upon himself. Bethel was a place of even older background for our knowledge because Jacob met God at Bethel. The name he gave means the house of God. And in the time of Judges, the ark rested at Bethel and was a sanctuary where, Solomon, where Samuel again worshipped God. When David became king, he captured Jerusalem and when Solomon was king, he built the temple in Jerusalem. But in the time of the divided kingdom... Gilgal and Bethel, just across the, the uh, border, Gilgal and Bethel became the alternative centres of worship in Jerusalem, uh, to Jerusalem for the southern kingdom. So the northern kingdom would come to Gilgal and Bethel, the southern kingdom continued to worship in Jerusalem. Now, 200 years later, the time of Amos, we're getting there now, 200 years later, Another Jeroboam is on the throne, which is why we call him Jeroboam II, and it's about 750 BC. It's a period of great power and wealth in Israel. The mighty world empire of Assyria is only just rising up. Egypt is not particularly powerful at this time to threaten Israel, and so the little state of Israel was actually, flexible, was actually powerful in Palestine. More importantly, the time of Jeroboam II was a time of continued national apostasy. The end of the northern kingdom of Israel was actually in sight, but they couldn't see it. That's what Amos is trying to help them see. Within 30 years from this time, the 10 northern tribes of Israel, that nation Israel it is then called, is going to be completely destroyed. When I say completely destroyed, it has never come back into existence again. It is gone. And that's why suddenly you start talking always of Jews because it's only the two southern tribes of Judah that survived the onslaught of the Assyrian Empire. But the people couldn't see it. They were so safe and secure in their delusions they couldn't see the writing on the wall or, as it was in this case, 
they couldn't grasp the warnings that God was sending them and of which Amos is explaining to them. The people failed to meet God where God revealed himself. Now the chapter has three sections in front of you, in front of us here, of the failure to meet God. The first is the failure to meet God in wealth. Instead of thanking God for the wealth that he had given them and using their wealth to bring justice in the land, the wealthy totally ignored God and his ways and oppressed the peoples of the land. And so we read in verse 1, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Uh, Bashan was a rich pasture land where the cows were well fed. It's a kind of devastating image of wealthy women of Israel called cows. Generally, it's not approved of calling women cows, but God did. Uh, He calls them cows, you cows of Bashan. For they are being portrayed in their, the arrogance of their affluence. And so the judgment of God is declared by the prophet in verse 2. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. You're supposed to be the holy people of God, different to all the other peoples of the world because you are the people of the holy God. And yet... You're just acting like the pagans would act. And so, you rich, arrogant women will be carried out of the city like dead fish. It's a very striking little passage, this one, isn't it? It's fairly dramatic, from cows to dead fish. Then comes the striking failure to meet God in religion. And so this ironic kind of invitation to come to the shrines, come to Bethel, come to Gilgal, But you don't meet God in Bethel and Gilgal. You just meet more transgressions. That's all that happens there. You multiply your transgressions by trying to worship God there. The religious ceremonies of Bethel and Gilgal were not what God wanted. This is a common teaching of the Old Testament. Let me just show it to you. If you can leave your outline in Amos and come back to Isaiah for a moment. Isaiah chapter 1. That's page 683, 683, Isaiah 1. Page 683. And pick it up from verse 11, which is the last verse on that page, so we'll be over the page in just a moment. Verse 11 of Isaiah 1. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of the bulls or the lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. 
Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. See, true religion is to visit the widows and the orphans in their distress and keep oneself unstained from the world. False religion is to ignore the widows, to ignore the injustices of the world, to live with your own affluence, oppressing other people, but turning up to religious ceremonies. Lighting candles, having incense flowing, having long prayers, long robes, established buildings, religious services without true obedience to God is abhorrent to God. It actually makes God sick. It's not as if God has left them without the message. He's repeatedly warned them of their danger by sending disasters upon them. Come back to Amos chapter 4 here. Not destruction, but warning them of the destruction that is to come. And so disasters that should wake them up from their slumber and realise that something is wrong that should stop them relying upon their own strength and their own wealth and get them to return to God. But they have not returned. And so we get verses 6 to 11 of Amos 4. And the warnings of God and the failure of Israel to turn back to him. He sent upon them famine in verse 6 and drought in verse 7 and blight and mildew in verse 9, and pestilence in verse 10. Pestilence kind of like that would remind you of the pestilence he sent upon Egypt in the ten plagues of the time of Moses and Pharaoh. And he overthrew them like Sodom and Gomorrah were overthrown. And yet we keep hearing the chorus line of, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord, verse 6. Verse 8, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Verse 9, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Verse 10, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Verse 11, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. How many more warnings do you need to receive before you enter the promised land God had said to them? that if you turn away from me, I will send you these things. Well, these things have come. And God also said, if you continue that way, you will be thrust out of this land. He sends the warnings, and they are like Pharaoh of old. When plague after plague came, what did Pharaoh do? He hardened his own heart. Oh, for a moment or two, he'd say, okay, the people can go, the people can go. But then when things started to go all right again, no, no, the people must stay. And so the next plague came and the next plague and the next plague. And each time he would, in the middle of the plague, say, yes, 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 I want help. But then each time as the plague receded, he said, no, 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 I don't need help. They didn't return. And so we have this great warning in verse 12. Therefore... Thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. If you will not return to me, I will come to you. 
but not as you would want him to come. For the one that comes is the real one, the real God of Israel, the one who is described in verse 13 there as the one who forms the mountains and creates the wind. And he's more than the creator. He's the one who shares his thoughts with man about his plans and declares what is on his mind. And more than that, he is still the ruler of the world who we read makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. He is the Lord. The God of armies is his name, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of hosts. Here is the awesome ruler of the universe whom you are to meet. Not some little local God like the God of the Philistines or the God of Edomites or the God of the Moabites. Not some small domesticated household God that you can bring out and put on your mantelpiece and polish up and offer up some fruit to. Not some domesticated form of worship whereby you can live the way you want to live and once or twice a year go up to Gilgal, go up to Bethel and, and make things there all right. But the true, the living God who rules the universe. Sometimes I think we miss the grandeur of God. We come to him in prayer or we come to read, his, read the word of God in the morning at breakfast or whenever it is that you read it each day or we gather here on a Sunday to hear his word and we forget that we're actually meeting with the Almighty, the God of heaven and earth, the ruler of the universe, the true and living God, the creator, preserver and ruler of heaven and earth. That is whom we are meeting with. And where will Israel meet with their God? Why, in his word. Chapter 5, verse 1, you see, just carries straight on. And uh, thank you for Paul reading it like that this morning. For that's where we meet him, in his word. Hear this word that I take over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. And to meet God in his word is to meet God in his most powerful, awesome strength. For you remember in Psalm 33 verse 6 we're told that by the word of the Lord the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth all their host. God spoke and the universe came into existence. To meet God in his word is to meet him in his creative power. Or think of Isaiah chapter 66 where we read, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. And what is the house that you would build for me and where is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came into being, declares God. But, Isaiah 66 verse 2, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You, you can't build a temple big enough to contain God, for God has created the universe upon which the temple is standing. But God will dwell in the heart of the contrite. God will dwell with the person who trembles at his word. There is almost nothing we ever do that is more important than having the Bible read to us on a Sunday morning here. 
And if we treat it with disdain, if we treat it with contempt, if we fall asleep because we don't care what is being said, we are not trembling at his word. This is what God is saying to us. When God speaks, we should tremble, for his speech is the powerful means by which he creates, preserves, judges the world. Remember, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the word that Israel was to meet in Amos chapter 5 verse 2 declared that they were to meet God in his judgment. Fallen, verse 2, fallen no more to rise is the virgin of Israel. Forsaken on her land, none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. The warnings were coming to an end. The disasters were coming to an end because destruction was about to arrive for those who had ignored the warnings of God. Frankly, friends, the message seemed unbelievable in 750 BC. I mean, 30 years is a long time in public consciousness, isn't it? And to think ahead 30 years, what's going to happen in 30 years' time? (laughs) Who can tell what's going to happen in 30 years' time? I mean, what are we going to be? 2042, is is that 30 years? I can't think quickly after arithmetic and I haven't got it in my notes, but go for 2042. What do you think is going to happen in 2042? I think I'm going to be dead. (laughs) But leaving that possibility aside, or should I say probability, can I imagine what Australia is going to be like, what Sydney is going to be like in 20... Oh, I can't. If you'd asked me 30 years ago, I couldn't have told you what it was like today. There are certain things that haven't changed. The harbour's still there. But, you know, 30 years' time, it might be a bigger harbour thanks to global warming. Who knows what's going to happen in 30 years' time? And so the people of Israel, they were safe, they were secure, they were wealthy, they'd had disaster after disaster, and each one of them they'd survived. There's no problems. In 30 years' time, they no longer existed. Staggering, you see. But they wouldn't listen. 722 BC, the Assyrian emperor came down and destroyed Samaria and captured all the cities and moved all the way down the Palestinian line and destroyed the civilization that was there. The events of the world, the events of life can change so quickly as economies collapse, armies conquer, regimes fall, revolutions succeed. The great ones fall sick and die or assassinated or flee or exiled. Israel was to go into oblivion, destroyed and scattered across the face of the ancient world, never to be reconstituted. When we feel secure and assured of our wealth and position is when we are actually most vulnerable to overlooking the dangers of the world we live in or to ignore the warnings of God. Pride comes before the fall. As Jesus said, children, 
how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? What's so tough about rich people? Because rich people don't think they need God. Rich people have confidence in themselves and in their wealth. And they are not dependent upon God. Or as Paul wrote, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who provides us with everything to enjoy. Uncertainty of riches. The great spin doctors are called, they, they encourage us to invest in securities. It's a wonderful word, securities, isn't it? There's one thing about securities that I want to share with you, my friends. They don't exist. There's a name, but they don't actually exist. There is nothing secure. Ask a Greek. Yet, by the prophetic words of Amos, Israel was still meeting with God. In his mercy, they were meeting. Oh, you can meet God in judgment, but you can also meet God in mercy. And it was in mercy that they were meeting. For there was still the opportunity to hear and respond. There was still the time to return to me, says the Lord. See the urgent, the loving plea of God there for us in verse 4 of chapter 5. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. There was still time. There was still opportunity. Don't go to Bethel. Don't go to Gilgal. That's just the way of sin. That's just the way of destruction. But seek the Lord and live. Here is God's mercy. His mercy is in warning them of the judgment to come. His mercy is in challenging them to return while they still can. His mercy is in promising them life, forgiveness, mercy, pardon. And in meeting God today, things haven't changed that much. I mean, we're not God's nation as Israel was, but we're easily deluded by the same things that they were. We're still deceived by wealth, thinking we're safe or significant because we're well provided for, and ignorant of the way in which our wealth oppresses other people and have changed our attitudes and our injustices. Of course, nobody actually thinks they're wealthy. Have you noticed that? If you're asked here in this group of people to put up the hands of the people who are rich, there wouldn't be a hand going up. No, there is no rich person here. We are never wealthy. Do you know why we're not rich and wealthy? Because we all know somebody who's richer than us. If there's one person richer than us, then I'm not the rich, am I? I I'm not one of the wealthy. No, no, it couldn't be me. I'm no cow in Bashan. But we forget. We still think that there is some security and safety in riches, some stability. But we forget that rich people get cancer. Rich people have heart attacks. Rich people have car accidents. Rich people's children go off the rails. Nobody is really safe. It's an illusion. It's a delusion. And we still are deceived by religious ceremonies as if God wants our pomp and occasional flurry of worship rather than our heartfelt love and obedience. As if God is happy with our decisions about 
how to serve him rather than his requirements on how to serve him, as if provided we are sincere, he doesn't mind that our form of worship is blasphemous and idolatrous distortion of him. And we're still deaf to the kinds of warnings he gives us. He sends our nation a 10-year drought and we have not turned back to him in prayer, asking for mercy and help. We've weathered the drought. He relieves the drought and we don't turn back and say thank you. So he sends us floods and fires and we don't turn back. How many warnings does he need to send us that we are not in control of this world? That he will one day call upon us to give account for all our failures? But it's not just national. It is within the nation of God in Israel of the Old Testament world, but it's also personal for us. As disaster comes upon you and upon me, upon us, the heart attack or the cancer scare or the broken relationship or the business failure and we do not turn back. He has in the dreadful judgment on sin in his son's death given us the ultimate message of warning and also of forgiveness. What a mercy there is in the gospel's warning of the judgment to come What a mercy there is in the promise of forgiveness through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and yet our society who has this message for hundreds and hundreds of years does not turn back but rather trusts in its wealth, its own religion of good works, its own confidence that everything will work out okay in the end. She'll be apple, she'll be right. It is in the poorer countries of this world where people turn in great numbers to the Lord Jesus Christ. Huge numbers in parts of South America, across India, all through Africa, are people turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in the rich countries that we have difficulty explaining the gospel in any terms that people will turn back to God, not because they're cleverer. That's a terrible racism to think we are cleverer. Nothing to do with that. How hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven because we're deluded and deceived by the securities and safeties we have. There are two hymns that I've chosen this morning. I've asked and for and we've got them both here. They're very unusual hymns. We've just sung one by William Cowper. It is an unusual hymn, isn't it? He's a man who suffered dreadfully from depression, as we would call it today, melancholy as they called it then, the one we just sang. See, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, verse 4, but trust him for his grace. But find the the frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. The evils that befall us, are still sent by God out of his kindness. Or his purposes he will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his works in vain. 
God is his own interpreter. And he'll make it plain. Without God explaining what is happening in this world, we would never understand what he is doing in this world. But look at Amos chapter 4, if you can hold this open here for a moment. Amos 4 verse 13. For behold, he forms the mountains and creates the wind declares to, to, and declares to man what is his thought. God is his interpreter, his own interpreter. He explains to us what the troubles are and why and what is happening. But if we don't listen to his explanation and in our delusory blind unbelief try and work out what it is, we either go into superstition or we go into a total hardness of heart. Or come to the next hymn, which is just over the page, at the top of page three of our hymns. This is an extraordinary and wonderful hymn on the judgment of God. There's not many hymns on the judgment of God. It's not a subject we like singing about, really. Great God, what do I see and hear? The end of things created. The judge of all men doth appear on clouds of glory. It's the judgment hymn. The trumpet sounds, the graves restore the dead, which they contained before. And so the challenge of Amos 4, prepare my soul to meet him. And then it talks in verse 2 of the dead in Christ and verse 3, but the sinners. Notice the dead in Christ in verse 2, at the end of the last three lines of that verse, verse 2. No gloomy fears their souls dismay, his presence sheds eternal day on those prepared to meet him. But look in contrast at the sinners in verse 3. That sinners filled with guilty fears down to the last three lines. The day of grace has passed and gone. Trembling they stand before the throne all unprepared to meet him. It's the fundamental difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. The Christian is prepared to meet God. The non-Christian is unprepared to meet God. And so when God comes in his day of judgment, that difference is all, isn't it? But how can the Christian be prepared to meet God? The last verse is beautiful. Great God, what do I see and hear? The end of things created, the judge of all men doth appear on clouds of glory seated. Lo, at his cross I view the day when heaven and earth shall pass away and thus prepare to meet him. The way we can meet God is only through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, but with the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, I who am as sinful wretch that I am can meet with God, pardoned, forgiven and given life. What about you? Are you prepared to meet him? Well, rest assured, my friends, one day you will. Why not make it this day rather than that day? So when that day comes, you are prepared to meet him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death and for his resurrection, by which we are prepared to meet you. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the warnings that you keep giving us that we are not God, 
that we are not in control of our lives and our world. Thank you for the warnings that you keep giving us of our mortality and the reality that one day we will be meeting you. Heavenly Father, please so pour your spirit into each one of us here this day that we may all know of the Lord Jesus and his death and resurrection for us. That at the foot of the cross, we all will be prepared to meet you when you send your Son in glory on that last day to judge the living and the dead. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.